Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, we are going to have an interesting interview for you today. We are talking to a congressperson, Ro Khanna. Uh, really excited for it. I'll probably have, um, you know, some questions that are somewhat laudatory, some questions that are um, aggressive and, you know, questioning strategy and things of that nature and everything in between. So there's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely excited for that. Uh, um, but right before we started recording this, we just had some some big news that hit. And there was a terror attack at uh, just outside the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Now, to this point, the United States, uh, since August 14th, has evacuated at least 75,000 people. So as of today, it's actually close to 100,000. 100,000. That's from August 14th, or I think that's from the end of July. Okay. Well, yeah. as of this morning, it was, I think, 90,000 to 95,000. Okay. Yeah. So in all seriousness, and... Um, the White House press secretary said this, Jen Psaki said this the other day, this is like the largest airlift in U.S. history. Yeah. And again, had gotten out nearly 100,000 people, if not more than 100,000 people, definitely over 100,000 since late July. Um, and Biden came out and gave a speech the other day and said, we have, there, there's a credible threat of an ISIS terror attack. And that was one of the reasons why he cited you know what, the the August 31st deadline, we're going to stick to that August 31st deadline. Right. And the Taliban also came out and said, you're sticking to the August 31st deadline. Now, everybody interpreted the Taliban saying that as like, oh, they're trying to show that they're like macho and tough. But, you know, seeing that now there was an attack, I actually look at that and I think maybe they believe that too because they thought they couldn't secure the airport. And so you had 6,000 U.S. Uh, military on the ground trying to secure the airport to get the evacuations done. Um, and you had the Taliban too, tan tangentially there. Um, and there was two bombs that just went off. And as of right now, and this is almost certainly going to change because this is very early on uh, for when this happened. I mean, this just happened an hour or two ago. Uh, there's 13 who are dead, 15 who are injured, including three Americans. So... It's a developing story, but um, the ISIS has already come out, and um, and we just saw this literally five minutes ago. We were going to come out here, and I was going to speculate that it's ISIS who did the bombing. Now we know for sure because they've announced that they were responsible for it. So we're in a very weird situation where the Taliban is a guerrilla army, and they have national ambitions. They want Afghanistan. They've effectively taken Afghanistan. And what you have are jihadist elements— ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others. And so now you have this basically um, theocratic civil war, in essence, happening within the country. And, you know, this is one of the things you won't hear on mainstream media. In fact, now they're saying the opposite, but I'll go out and say it. There is a 0% chance that the Taliban wanted this to happen because they're going to view this as one of the few things that could potentially draw the Americans back in, which is the last thing that they want. The absolute last thing that they want here. Um, there are also reports, by the way, that Taliban militants were also injured or killed in this attack. That's right. And yeah. again, when we're recording this, it's preliminary information coming in. So by the time that this airs, there may be different facts and different information that is out there. But we're just giving you what we know at this point. Yeah, look, I mean, already over on CNN, H.R. McMaster is there speculating that, oh, maybe the Taliban put ISIS up to that. I mean— you, he, he's not he's lying. stupid no, enough. He's lying. He's lying. He is not he's lying. stupid enough to think that that would be the case because they're enemies. They're not buddies. They're not friends. They are enemies. They are adversaries. Number one and number two, as you said, 
Taliban wants us out of there. That's why they've allowed us to, you know, have the airport and get all of these flights and get our people and some Afghans out as well. Tens and tens of thousands of people. They want us gone so that they can take control and, you know, best of luck to them governing and do all of the terrible thing. No one here is saying like the Taliban is good or anything like that. I mean, they're terrible and their ideology is terrible and they're repressive. All of that is the case. It is also, in fact, the case that there are some even more extremist elements that have not just national ambitions, but global terror ambitions. ISIS-K, that's the sort of regional ISIS affiliate, is one of them. And that looks to be who is responsible for these attacks. So six years ago, almost to the day, I recorded a segment titled, The Taliban is Clobbering ISIS in Afghanistan. Because the reporting was, at the time, ISIS, and at the time they had developed what they considered a caliphate and Afghanistan, they're the, you know, they're an Islamist um, regional government in many respects. And they didn't like that there was a new kid on the block who was encroaching on their territory. And so there was a war between the Taliban and ISIS. In fact, the United States backed the Taliban in that fight. That's on the record. We know that that's the case. And so point is, they've always been enemies or for, you know, all of recent history, they've been enemies. And so we're in a position now where the Taliban has taken over and they certainly feel like this is something that's going to make them look bad on the world stage. Cause they're doing the whole PR offensive. Remember right. where they're pretending like, well, we're in favor of women's rights and free right. speech. Yeah. Okay. Being... Sure you are. <laughs> but what they're trying to do guys, the reason why they're doing that is because they want to be accepted as a legitimate government. And so when you have what just happened and now some people are blaming the Taliban for it, acting like they carry out the attack. Well, my suspicion is, hear me now, quote me later. This is speculation, but we'll see whether or not it comes true. My guess is the Taliban are going to unleash the hounds of hell on ISIS now. And so you really are going to have, uh, you know, bloody, bloody fight that could continue for an extended period of time, which gets back to the main point. Get the hell out. ASAP. Now, right. I, I, you know, I say that we are doing that, at least to this point, we've been doing that. Hopefully this doesn't drag them right back in because Biden might fall for that. We don't know. But the takeaway from this is get out, get out, get out, get out. You want to referee a fight between ISIS and the Taliban? Are you insane? This right. reminds me like when people have been saying, oh, this is just like, you know, the, the fall of Saigon. That's what this reminds me of. They say that. And the implication is like the, the lesson was we should have stayed in Vietnam longer. Right. No, the message was we shouldn't have even done this war in the first place. And now people are citing that and implying like, oh, see, we messed up Afghanistan so bad as if the implication is we should have just stayed there. There was no there was no going back to the status quo because, you know, there was the the agreement that they had with the Taliban. And then, you know, the what's the phrase you guys used on breaking points? The guns would have been hot on whatever the day was that the uh, the agreement runs out. Mm. And so you couldn't there would have been fighting immediately if we didn't follow through. Originally, it was May 1st, then it was pushed to August 31st. But you can't just stay there after you've crafted the agreement. And if you. You know, if the U.S. did another surge, the results of that would have been absolutely disastrous. More well, Americans would have died. More money would have been spent. And yeah. you would be in whenever you do eventually pull out. The same thing would have happened. Taliban, the Taliban would have taken over Afghanistan and it would have become Talibanistan. I love the way that the Hawks use 
literally every obvious glaring failure of their own policy to somehow justify more of their policy. That's right. right? That's exactly right. What we've learned over the past couple of weeks is that the Afghanistan war was even more of a failure than the greatest critics could have possibly imagined. Whole thing totally collapses. We spent 20 years to make the Taliban stronger and the opposition, which we, you know, funded and tried to arm and tried to train and all that stuff. We actually made the opposition weaker than when we initially showed up in Afghanistan. So that failure greater than anyone could have possibly imagined. And yet somehow the hawks use that to justify, oh, no, well, that just means we need to stay longer. And now, to your point, This attack just actually vindicates Biden saying, guys, no, we need to get the hell out of there by August 31st because this is a dangerous situation. And the longer that we stay there, the more dangerous it becomes, especially if we stay past the date that we initially set here of August 31. Then we're in the middle of a civil war. It's a live fire exercise and anything can ultimately happen. American uh, officials, British officials, UK officials, and Australian officials had all warned their people not to go to the airport right now because of what they were describing as a very specific terror threat. Biden announced it in a speech. Announced it in a speech. He said there's going to be an attack. ISIS is going to hit. They they had this intelligence that this was very unfortunately likely to happen. um, And so they were warning people away. And look, this is such a volatile situation that even with the U.S. troops that are there on the ground, servicemen and women who are doing an incredible job of managing this evacuation in incredibly difficult circumstances. In spite of that, in spite of the Taliban, for all that we can tell, somewhat cooperating here, you still have what turns out to be a horrific terror attack. As you said, it is it just further proves that it is time to get the hell out of there before there's even more loss of life. Well, I would just propose this question to people because every what's going to happen is the idiots on mainstream media are going to blame Biden again. Mm-hmm. He just warned that there was going to be an attack. He just warned that it was going to happen. And then it happened. What el- what would you have done differently if you were in Joe Biden's shoes? And if you say, hey, we should have stayed there. Well, you already lost me. You already lost the American people. The most recent poll, 63 percent, even after the fall of Kabul, 63 percent say we, we should get out. So you lose me if you say just permanently stay. So given the set of facts that we're leaving, what could he have done differently if we already evacuated almost 100,000 people or over 100,000 people? And to that point, there were zero American casualties. What, what would you have done differently? I, I mean that question sincerely. What would you have done differently? Because I just saw Ben Shapiro on Twitter saying impeach. Impeach? Impeach for ending a war? Do you have no idea how the Constitution works? That's the commander in chief. He can end whatever war he likes. He can't start any war because that's on Congress. Congress has the authority to declare a war. So if anything, you should say impeach Biden for the illegal bombing of Syria or the illegal bombing of Somalia, which he engages in all the time. There, there's a fair argument to make. There is not at all a fair argument to make about pulling out of a war that we never should have been in in the first place that we just learned from the Afghanistan papers was a farce from day one. So what would you have done differently? Yeah. There, there is no answer to that. People are just going to use this to attack, and the media is now going to have a field day, the cackling hyenas that they are, and they're going to use this to drive down his poll numbers even more. Again, on the one issue where he did the right thing, they're going to clobber him over and over and over and over and drive his poll numbers down. And that's why the media is full of shit and they manufacture consent. Noam Chomsky was right all along. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And look, you know, regular people out there living their lives, they don't know these details that 
Taliban and ISIS are adversaries. No idea. No right? idea. So when someone people on CNN don't know that. So, right, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. So when H.R. McMaster goes on there and in his grave and solemn tone informs them that, oh, it's it's very possible that the Taliban put the ISIS up to this. Total bullshit. It yeah, I mean, but you know, if you don't have educated anchors or anchors who have any interest in informing people like that's ridiculous. And for you just to come on my air and make some wild accusation without having anything to back it up that seems preposterous on its face, like that's wildly irresponsible. But that's also a perfect metaphor for how their coverage has been this entire time. So yes, it is the greatest irony that the most courageous and correct thing that Biden has done by far in his administration, he gets trashed across the board from liberal media, from conservative media, from morons like Ben Shapiro who want to say impeach over actually doing the thing, having the courage to do the thing that two presidents before him promised to do and never actually were able to pull off. So the thing about H.R. McMaster really drives me insane because I remember there have been so many times that I've covered stories of like people in the media not knowing the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah, for example, mm-hmm. people in the media. There was a very famous moment. I'm not sure if Trump was the one he was doing an interview. I think it was with Dennis Prager or Hugh Hewitt, and he didn't know the difference. I think it was between Hamas and Hezbollah, but it may have been between Sunni and Shia. But there's like, point is, there's been at least like three or four different instances where somebody who talks about politics for a living or is a politician didn't know the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah or Sunni and Shia. And what you saw there with uh, McMaster is, it's not that he doesn't know it, it's that he's lying. Because he does know He does know. He does know that the Taliban and ISIS are enemies. He does know that it's ISIS who did the terror attack. But he's blaming the Taliban. Why? Connect the dots. He wants us to go back in. And so you go out there, you do the propaganda. CNN anchor's not going to push back because they don't know shit. They don't know anything. I know more than them and I'm an idiot YouTuber. Are you kidding me? So... Look at this position that we're in. I guarantee you they're going to use this to attack Biden as if there's anything Biden could have done to stop it. When he already warned about it, we already secured the airport. We already evacuated almost 100,000 people. What else could possibly have been done? All this tells me is they were already going probably as fast as they could. You were giving it 100%. Okay, give it 101% and let's get out there even faster. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, the the real horrible lesson to take from this is that our servicemen and women are at— um, in grave danger every moment that they remain in the country and certainly if they remain past August 31. And so, you know, you had the G, all the G7 trying to pressure Biden into staying longer, et cetera, et cetera. And to his credit, he stood firm because this dynamic is really obvious. You stay longer, you end up in the middle of a civil war where, you know, people keep saying, oh, well, we haven't lost any U.S. troops for the past year or the past two years. Yeah, that's because Trump had negotiated a peace deal, okay? So that's why there was not a threat to U.S. service members right then. But once you go past that deadline, it's a totally different situation, and that's something they don't want to talk about. And just final point, it's not just our people that are in danger. Given the facts of this situation, it's also every single Afghan civilian and the Taliban who were also targeted by ISIS. So, you know, they're not going to like the fact that I'm lumping all of them together, but it is an objective fact that they were all targets, all of them. But now it's going to be used again by the deep state, by the Pentagon, by the CIA, by the military industrial complex, by the media to say, oh my God, probably the Taliban behind this, we should probably stay longer. Just total mess. Yeah. And you can also see too why 
all the presidents before Biden didn't have the stones to actually do this because this is the ons- media onslaught and they will just bury you. It's I not going to stop. Yeah. The deep state leaks. The stenography, journalism, all of it, wall-to-wall coverage. They didn't give a shit about Afghanistan until they could use this moment to try to advocate to stay indefinitely. And so, yeah, they'll just crush you, and it's working. I mean, his approval rating has dropped precipitously. Even as Americans still overwhelmingly say this is the right policy— I've never but seen anything like it. They've been persuaded to believe, like, oh, we could have done the withdrawal differently. Really? I've, I've, been, I've really? never seen anything like this. 63% still say, to this day, get out of Afghanistan. A majority even say get out of Afghanistan if you tell them, what if al-Qaeda takes over? And if they say, what if the Taliban takes over? No matter how you uh, phrase the question, Americans say, a majority, every time, get out of Afghanistan, but... Again, I've never seen anything like it, this massive contradiction. The same time people say get out of Afghanistan, they also are dropping Biden's approval rating on it from 55% all the way down to 25%, I saw on one poll. Oh, really? Yes, there was a 25% on the issue of Afghanistan. Oh, I on covered Afghanistan. it on my show. Yes. Okay. No, 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 not his not overall, overall rating. approval no, no, no. rating. On the issue of Afghanistan, it went from 55 to 25. It was his best, and now it's his worst. Yeah. And so that just shows you, media propaganda works. It works. Yes, And, you know, we're, like I said on my show the other day, we're standing in front of a tsunami going, stop, stop. Yeah. It's like it, that, you know, we're doing everything we can, but we're just, we don't have a big enough megaphone. Yeah, indeed. Um, it is an onslaught, the likes of which I don't know that I have ever seen. Um, there's something else that's really significant that's been going on in Washington this week that, frankly, with regards to your life, your family, your community, day-to-day practicalities is the most significant story, in my view, um, that is happening in the nation right now. And that is the fate of Bernie's $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. So. The process of this is a little complex, so I'm going to try to boil it down to the essentials here because the process is boring and is ultimately not really the point. But you had this agreement between Bernie and Pelosi that in order to get some sort of reasonable reconciliation package through that includes key priorities, they're going to bundle together this Kind of shitty bipartisan infrastructure deal. It's fine, but it doesn't have any climate provisions. It's watered down. It's got privatization. It's got some stuff that's not real great, and the price tag is fairly low. But these conservative Democrats are obsessed with this freaking infrastructure deal and obsessed with getting it through. Why? Because their corporate donors are obsessed with this bill and obsessed with getting it through. So the idea was, let's bundle the infrastructure package that the conservatives want with the reconciliation bill that everybody else wants. That way, it's kind of like you have to do both or you get neither, and everyone can get some of what they want in this deal. So that was the deal that Bernie and Pelosi had ultimately come to, and that was kind of moving apace. Then you have this group of corporate assholes led by Josh Gottheimer uh, from New Jersey, also known as the dude who's obsessed with, you know, cutting taxes for his wealthy constituents through the salt tax, backed by terrible groups like uh, No Labels and the Chamber of Commerce. And they decide they want to blow this whole thing up. They don't like that the progressives have even a chance of getting something decent out of this. Their corporate donors, especially from the fossil fuel industry, but also from pharma, are very much opposed to the reconciliation bill. So they're doing everything they can to blow up that two-track process where you have these two things tied together so that the ultimate goal is to kill the reconciliation bill. Okay, so that's the backdrop is these nine assholes that ended up being 10 assholes, nine or 10, 
They don't want the reconciliation bill to go through. Their donors don't like it. They do want the infrastructure bill. And so they threw a fit this week and tried to derail this entire process. They threatened not to vote for a rule that's required to move all of this whole situation forward. Uh, Where we are today is that Nancy Pelosi came to a kind of a deal with them that says that the infrastructure bill has to be considered, the thing they want, has to be considered by September 27th. Now, there is some reporting that says this is mostly just a face-saving gesture, that she still controls all the cards, that actually that date, it only had the vote, it only has to be considered by that day. You don't even have to have a vote for by that day, so you could push it off further. Some of the reconciliation package has already been written, so it's possible in these next five weeks you could get that thing done and still have these two things tied together and come to the floor for a vote at roughly the same time, so you still have the same sort of strategy in place. But it's kind of put the whole process into limbo and, importantly, has maintained all of the control with Pelosi, which I think if you're a progressive is kind of a dicey situation to be in. Yeah, um, so I have mixed feelings on this. I see it all depends what Pelosi really wants, sort of like you're alluding to right there. Um, It is possible that she looks at this and says, September 27th is the deadline. And even though she technically has the ability to make it not the deadline, she might pull the same move that the Democrats pull with the parliamentarian, which is like, I said September 27th. So I guess it's going to be September 27th. So that would be the poison pill. And then all the all the conservative Democrats would have to do is sit there and let the clock run out. Right. Or that's exactly right. Or they're going to hack away at the initial three and a half trillion dollars. We already know that that is the case. They're going to have to extract their pound of flesh. Well, that's the whole point of reconciliation. That's this is the reconcile it part. Right. They negotiate. So by putting that date into place, if Pelosi ultimately decides to, she can put pressure on progressives. Just like you said, she can. Oh, well, I said September 27th. So it has to be September 27th. So you create this deadline. And then if the package has gotten negotiated down to one and a half trillion dollars, she can basically say to progressives like, well, this is it. Take it or leave it. You either get the one and a half trillion or you get nothing. Well, so then but this leads to an interesting conversation, though, because I think there are going to be different opinions on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable among the, yeah. the left flank. Right. And I've said my my golden rule is it's got to be two trillion or more. I mean, obviously, the details matter. If it's a two point five trillion dollar bill, but the details suck, then I'll say, no, I don't want it. But if it's over two trillion, I think the details are OK. I'm going to take it. But if it's under two trillion, I'd say, no, that's just me. Right. There are people who are going to disagree with me. There are some people who are going to say, even if it's a trillion, I'll take it. Right. You know, but to this point, the entire left flank in Congress has been very consistent. And they say you put them together. Or we're we're done. We're not going to vote for the bipartisan one. So yes. let me ask you because mm-hmm. here's what's going to here's what could potentially happen. They could say they could take a stand and say no, nope, we're not going to do it. But the number of them matters because it is possible to go get some moderate Republicans in the House right. to vote for the bipartisan bill. And the reason yeah. I say that is because this passed with 69 votes in the Senate. Right. A lot of assholes who never I would have thought in a million years would have voted for it voted for it. And the reason they voted for it is because they wanted to basically kill the human infrastructure bill and say, we did something, see? And so you can have, so the question is, and we'll talk about this with Rokana. Yeah. Are you going to be organized and how many people are you going to get? Yes. And so can you, can you get 20? Can you get the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus to say, nope? 
Yeah, so... Uh, the answer is no, by the way, to that question. According, <laughs> to, according to Ryan Grimm's reporting, um, he talked to Henry Cuellar, who's one of the nine assholes, um, who also, side note, almost lost in his primary to Jessica Cisneros. Right. Who and will eventually do that. Justice Democrat, who is running again, and who uh, the entire Democratic establishment worked to crush the campaign of. And now you have Henry Cuellar come back and, like, you know, make a mess of Biden's entire agenda here as a thank you for helping him pull off a narrow primary victory. Put that aside. Henry Cuellar says they have 10 to 12 Republicans who are willing to vote in favor of that infrastructure bill. The reason that matters is just as you were saying, that means that the progressives need to get about 15 votes um, to stick with them and not vote for the infrastructure bill in order to maintain that leverage. Otherwise, they become irrelevant. If they can pull over enough Republicans to vote for the infrastructure package, then progressives ultimately have no leverage here. However, it seems like there is less support among Republicans in the House for the infrastructure package than there was in the Senate. Reason being, in the Senate, they thought voting for this infrastructure package is a way to kill the human infrastructure bill. In the House, they now see these two things as tied together, and they feel like a vote for the infrastructure package is a vote for helping the Democrats, helping Biden, et cetera, et cetera. So they haven't been able to maintain as much support in the House for it as they were able to maintain in the Senate. But that being said, they Cuellar says they have 10 to 12. He has an incentive to overstate the case here a little bit. But even if you say 10, you have to have not just the squad, but you got to have the squad plus in order for progressives to maintain any leverage in this situation. Well, but we should be clear that as of right now, the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is a lot of people, do you know the exact number off the top of your head? Here, let me pull it up as I'm talking here. Um, here, you talk. I'll okay, the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus has said, put the bills together and we're not budging on $3.5 trillion. Now, the, the we're not budging on $3.5 trillion thing is just a negotiating position. None of them mean it. I want everybody to know that right now. Not a single one of them means it. Even the squad doesn't mean it. Like I said, the whole point of reconciliation is you're going to start somewhere and then you're going to reconcile it and negotiate and come out with something else. So, but the question is, if you can hold how many? 95. 95 people right now say, put them together or fuck off. And so can that many hold for that? I don't think so. Right. But can you maybe, no. this is why we'll ask Rokana, can you hold 20? Because if you could hold 20, you're going to win that standoff. Right. Well, and that's where it also becomes um, important to know what the details are of the reconciliation bill that is ultimately negotiated. Because I do think Pelosi wants to get an infrastructure bill through and she wants to get some reconciliation Some human, human infrastructure because package. Because otherwise— but she probably wants like 1.5 or something like that. I don't know. But she wants— this is, you know, seen as a big Democratic Party priority. If they aren't able to do it, it'll be kind of a black eye. You know, these people, they don't really care about the policy details in terms of how it's going to actually just give me something. Right. Just let me get the, the show of the win so I can have a talking point that I can take out there to the public. So um, for her, I don't know that she's really that concerned with the price tag. And that's where the details of the Progressive Caucus and what they're willing to demand really matter because you could have end up with a situation where, you know, September 27th is coming. Um, the nine assholes plus Cinnamon plus Mansion in the Senate 
are making all of these unreasonable demands about, you know, we can't have this or that pay for, we can't possibly raise taxes on the wealthy, we can't possibly raise taxes on corporations, we can't possibly have, you know, this good pieces with regards to climate change or this part costs too much or whatever. And so they hack it way down. And then Pelosi basically forces the hand of progressives and says, look, this is the best deal that we can get. Take it or leave it. And are they going to stick together and actually say, no, no, this isn't sufficient? Or are they going to say, yeah, well, this is the best we can do. So I guess we're going to take it. I still think the biggest roadblock is the Senate. I think the biggest roadblock is going to be the Senate because you're not for Manchin and Cinema, and actually there's seven or eight of them who are in agreement with Manchin and Cinema. Yeah. If Biden doesn't know how to do some LBJ style arm twisting, so a carrot or stick approach, then the whole thing is doomed. Well, and this is again where does he really care about the details or does he just care about having a win, quote unquote, just like Pelosi? Does she really care about the details or does she just want a package to get through? Because there is reporting right now that um, they're using some pretty hardball tactics against the... But the hardball tactics were just to to get to the point where we are now. Where, Correct. Right, where you started the reconciliation start the process, process at $3.5 but now it's going to get hatcheted a thousand ways. Exactly right. So um, what was uh, what report that was floating around out there was that they were threatening these nine that like... We're going to redistrict you out of existence. We're going to fuck you up and redistrict it. gangster, son. And they were threatening... Somebody had like a relative who worked in the White House and they were like, we're going to fire that person. Yeah. No, but low-key though, <laughs> this is exactly the shit I always call I for. Know, like, this is what I you got to do. Well, and that's... I mean, for... For a moment, you have Pelosi's interests like somewhat aligned with the Progressive Caucus. So you see what it's so like you see to have how someone effective who actually be. Yeah. is like competent and willing to play hardball. Right. And she got her way. I mean, look, I do think that ultimately what the the nine got was a face saving gesture. I don't think it's really meaningful. Um, I think it might be. We'll see. I don't think it's I don't think it's really meaningful, except that it gives Pelosi another An out. Another tool in her toolkit to force compliance from either right. the yes. conservative Democrats or from Correct. the progressives. And we know where she normally well, I was tends say, to put her enforcement on. My prediction is once we get to whatever a final package is, she'll be conservative again. Yeah. So in other words, if you negotiate a $1.2 trillion deal, let's She's say, all say, of a sudden, this is amazing, she, this is, amazing, and, this is great. Right. It's like... What? We stripped out all the climate change stuff. Doesn't matter. This is amazing. Look at the other things we got in there. Like, yeah. that, it'll be something like that, you know? And the line from progressives has been no climate, no deal. Right. So, which, by I, the way, that's not the best. Like, it needs to be more than just that. Right. Yeah. Well, in that, it, it leaves it relatively squishy. It's so very there's squishy. There's going to be some climate something in the deal. And then, as long as there's some climate something, you're going to have a lot, a large percentage of the progressive caucus that says, look, it's got climate, so we're in. The best case scenario, in my opinion, Crystal, would be if they just lower the dollar amount for each thing but keep everything in. Mm-hmm. That would be a best case scenario. Right. So the way that they could do that without um, really changing some of the specifics of the bill is by limiting the time frame. Right. It's like yeah. one of those sort of budgetary gimmicks. It's not really – it's not totally a gimmick because it is real that then those things expire mm-hmm. and you have to re-up them through Congress – but the general thinking is um, once you give people a benefit, they don't it, they don't take kindly to you then taking it away. So this has been the calculus with the child tax credit, for example. It's like, well, we'll pass it temporarily with the expectation that people are really going to like getting some cash in their bank account if they have kids. 
And so when we have to reauthorize it, there's going to be so much popular support. Nobody's really going to be able to go against it, and we'll be able to keep moving it forward. Don't fully buy that argument. It's a little dicey. It is. It's yeah, a little I mean, dicey. The Republicans vote against the Violence Against Women Act every time it comes back up, and they never pay a political price yeah, for it. Yeah, over like the Civil yeah. Rights Act. I mean, yeah. things that are insanely they vote, popular. They vote for the Fuck Your Grandma Act, and there's no political price for it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I'm a little skeptical of that as well, but that's kind of the direction that some are thinking in is we could keep basically all the provisions that— and I, I do want to spend a moment talking about the provisions because— it's easy to get lost in the process, and it's complicated, and I am sorry if your eyes are glazing over, like, talking about this two-track process and all these people who are annoying. But the substance of the bill is really important, and it is significant. Is it everything that you or I would want? Of course not. Of course not. But You want me to tell everybody what's in it? Yeah, that would be, that would be fantastic. Okay, so I have it right here. Okay. Child tax benefit, universal pre-K paid family leave and medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental hearing and vision Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, immigration, uh, lower Medicare age, Obamacare expansion. Um, And then on the revenue side, beefed up IRS tax enforcement, taxing the rich, taxing corporations, fees on polluters and Medicare negotiations. And also the PRO Act. um, Or elements of the PRO Act. Yeah. So and some of these things are going to get stripped out by the parliamentarian, which is also silly. But that is going to happen probably to good chunks of immigration reform, probably to good chunks of the PRO Act. You hate that word. I can't. The word chunks always gets me. (laughs) Anyway, um, but I I just want to underscore that. People getting, being able to send their kids to preschool regardless of their means, like, that really makes a difference. People being able to go to community college for free, sure, I would love for them to go, you know, for a year and for all the debt to be canceled. But two years of free community college, that's transformative. Um, The child tax credit, massive. Paid leave is huge to me. Poverty program. Paid leave. We're the only developed country that doesn't have paid leave. Listen. Only one in the world. We've been talking a lot about how do we get people to, to go out and get the vaccine. If you had paid leave, that would help a lot of people. For because sure. people are worried about mm-hmm. not being able to not just take the day off work to go get the jab, but am I going to have symptoms? I have to take the next day off or two days off? Like, I can't, literally can't afford that. Nope. That's right. So something like paid leave can be incredibly transformative. Medicare. Um, expanding to cover vision and dental and hearing, that's huge quality of life improvement for people. Um, home health care. I mean, there are really, really significant provisions here. And I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that this is extraordinarily worth fighting for because it doesn't have everything that we would want. Okay. There is a lot here that would be incredibly significant. It's worth focusing on. It's worth fighting for. It's worth getting behind people that you wouldn't normally necessarily get behind in order to push for as much of this as possibly can. And that's before we even talk about this is the only chance that we're likely to get for a decade to deal with climate at all. And and to be clear, they are the left. We always scream at the left flank to leverage your vote, leverage your vote, leverage your vote. They're doing it right now. Right. They're actually doing it right now. Now, they're doing it to the extent that we need to keep together the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill. That's what they're saying. We're not abandoning that. And they're right to not abandon that. When we get to the final bill, 
some people will say, well, it's not the $3.5 trillion bill, and they'll act like, therefore, you're abandoning, you know, whatever, your principal take or, stance or whatever. But again, that is going to depend on the details. Because if you tell me it's over $2 trillion and every provision is a positive provision, I'm probably going to vote for it. You know, but yeah. I will draw a line. This, again, this is just me personally, my subjective take. Once you dip below that $2 trillion number, I would argue that the left got rolled in the, in the negotiations and you could have gotten more. So that's, yeah. that's just where I am on it. I'm curious what you think of well, that or if you have a take on it yet. I mean, I think your general line is correct. I definitely want to see the details, and I know you do too, of what gets in and what gets out and all of that. But, I mean, this is why from the beginning I thought it was really – stupid and foolhardy to go down this too complicated two-track process of having this bipartisan infrastructure deal that's like sort of shitty but gives corporate that's the piece that corporate america is really into and they don't like the reconciliation bill because their taxes are raised and if you're a fossil fuel company obviously the climate provisions are anathema to you so if you had had everything together then there's no ability for nine assholes led by Josh Gottheimer and no labels to go after the reconciliation pieces of it, the more progressive pieces of it. It's all bound together. So if they want to get their infrastructure that corporate America is desperate for, they're going to have to vote for the other piece. So because Biden has this bipartisanship fetish, and I think also because he has a chip on his shoulder that um, he wants to be better than Obama, who sort of sneered at him during his presidency. And Obama was never able to get a bipartisan deal done. Therefore, I want to get a bipartisan deal done to sort of one-up Obama. Because of Bi Biden's bipartisan fetish, we end up in this weird place with this two-track process. But progressives are using what leverage they have so far within the confines of that bizarre process. They deserve credit for that up to this point. And they deserve to have their feet held to the fire to make sure that they stick with the line and that they demand a deal that is anything approaching sufficient um, and worthwhile. But that's where the disagreements will come. Because uh, there will absolutely. be people who say that's not sufficient no matter what. Yes. You know? Yes. So. If it leaves off. I mean, there are people who already say the whole thing is not sufficient even at three and a half. And that's dollars. factually true. But we also need to live in the world that exists, not the one we made up in our head. And that's coming from somebody who's... I view myself as a policy purist, yeah. as somebody who would use the most hardball of hardball tactics as much as humanly possible. Everybody knows how I would roll if I was in that fucking White House, okay? But you also have to live in reality, you know? And so it's it's just a matter of getting the best deal you possibly can and not one that's like the best deal you possibly can and it just objectively sucks in every measure. Right. The best deal you possibly can, it's actually good. It's actually decent. Yes, don't minimize universal pre-K. Don't minimize universal community college, child tax credit, um, doing something. No, a lot of Democratic priorities are in this, oh. like left-wing priorities. Yes. Legit. This is not, this is not Bill Clintonism 2.0. This is a lot more like w the war on poverty from LBJ yeah. or like the New Deal. Uh, even though, as we asked Professor Richard Wolf, we said, is this the biggest transformation of the economy since the, since the New Deal? And he said, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. He went on to say, like, it's still inadequate, which he's right about. Yeah. But it is the biggest transformation since the New Deal, and that's yeah. not to be scoffed at. And the political context here really matters, too, because 
Democrats are going to lose power in the midterms. I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost a guarantee. Um, they're not going to hold yeah, the House. Do gerrymandering reform? No, or? they 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 had to do gerrymandering reform, and that even then it would have been tough just because of history. And now you have the media piled on top of Biden. You've got Delta surging, which isn't really his fault. You've got you know some economic bumps that are kind of his fault because he hasn't done nearly enough. But um. Look, they're in a very bad position. So this is the last moment to really do anything. And who knows how long that is going to last? When is the next time that they're going to have control of the White House, the Senate and the House? Who knows? And meanwhile, every year the planet gets warmer and warmer. It becomes harder to mitigate. We're already in a place where, you know, some of the worst impacts are going to continue for at least 30 years. Every year that we delay, it becomes harder and harder to mitigate the very worst of the damage. So it's now or never, and um, it's it's time for progressives to do everything they can to do get the absolute best deal that is possible right now, even as we all acknowledge that it is still wildly insufficient to meet the moment that we're living in. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into conversation about that much more. I'll yes, let you kick it off. Indeed. Um, Congressman from California, someone who you know, has been very consistent on foreign policy, someone we've really looked to there and uh, who should have a lot more details on the conversation we've just been having, both re- with regards to Afghanistan, but also with reconciliation, Congressman Ro Khanna. Joining us now, we have Congressman Ro Khanna. Great to see you, sir. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Um, so first of all, events are unfolding incredibly rapidly. Uh, I just saw the news on Twitter that four Marines, U.S. Marines, were killed in those attacks in Kabul. Um, just your reaction to the news as we know it now, understanding that things are going to change quickly. Obviously, it's a very, very sad day. I mean, the Marines uh, were there trying to save Americans, save uh, Afghanis, uh, vulnerable Afghans, and uh, your heart by heart breaks for them, for their families. It just reminds you what an extraordinary sacrifice it is uh, it, to serve and to do these kind of missions. Uh, and, uh, you know, my heart uh, breaks for the families and my thoughts are with them. So, Congressman, um, I, as I watch this unfold, to this point, President Biden has been I would say defiant in the face of a media that is like across the board telling him he's making the wrong decision by pulling out of Afghanistan and three, four five times he's come out and he said, no, this is what we're doing. Um, is it possible that he gets goaded into reinvading? I don't think so. I mean, he has known that this was a mistake since 2008. As you know, he was one of the few people back then who said that we shouldn't have a surge. He was right back then. He was right to withdraw. Uh, he has acknowledged, the administration has acknowledged that there'll be plenty of time to debate on whether it could, we could have evacuated sooner and how we evacuate. Uh, and they, we should have a transparent discussion about that. But the biggest mistake we could make is to get drawn into more conflict, uh, to put more uh, service members' lives at risk. Nicole, I think you had tweeted this out, which I thought was a very good point, and that is that the media has focused on the loss of life and the tragedy now over the past 20 days, where have they been for the past 20 years? And so people don't have a sense of all of the tragedies that were taking place over the last 20 years. If you go back in, you're just going to ask for more of that. We were just talking about, you were informing me, you have one of the largest Afghan-American communities there in your district. What have those conversations been like? And I know you've also been 
doing what you can to help with uh, evacuation, help getting people who are there in Afghanistan resources so they can get out. Um, take us through what you've been up to and, and whether you've had any success there. Well, first of all, Crystal, let me just say this, because as someone who represents probably the largest Afghan community in the country, the Afghan community is an extraordinary asset to the United States. I mean, I heard J.D. Vance on some show saying that uh, we shouldn't have Afghan refugees in this country because he worries that they would go into a mall and blow themselves up oh uh, if someone looked at their wife the wrong way. Oh, and Jesus. that those, that kind of comments, I mean, this is J.D. Vance saying that it's almost an exact quote. I mean, I don't think he understands it. Maybe he does. How young Afghan Americans hear that, uh, how hurtful that is, how offensive that is. And so I just want to let people know in this community that, that the Afghan American community has contributed to our economy, they've contributed to our innovation. I represent the heart of Silicon Valley. A lot of them are part of the innovative economy. They've contributed to our culture. They've contributed to our education. They're presidents of universities, uh, and they will enrich America. And we ought to uh, not have this kind of bigotry against accepting the Afghan refugees and Afghan uh, allies. We have had, it's been a very painful time for them. Many of them know cousins, relatives, family members who are there uh, trying to come here. We've had some success stories of getting uh, American citizens, uh, Afghan Americans back into our community. We've had some success with green card holders and special immigrant visas, but we've been inundated and, and we're doing the best that we can. There are a number of people in the House and in the Senate who I would say are either nominally anti-war or actually anti-war, and it is bipartisan. I think there are more anti-war people on the left than there are on the right, but every now and then Rand Paul will say something anti-war or Matt Gates or some others. Um, with Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, I really got the sense that whatever sort of loose anti-war caucus there was out there, it sort of evaporated the second he actually ended a war. And then we saw that, hey, there are negative consequences that go hand in hand with that. But the negative consequences with the war itself was way worse and it was never talked about. So my question is, watching Biden play defense has been really frustrating for me because I'm watching this. He seems to be the only one out there saying anything. And... I'm like, where's there should be like an anti-war caucus, not to play defense, but to go on the offense over this, to to proactively make the argument that getting out is a good thing. So why has the response been so lackluster and why did it take so long for so many people to even have even the tiniest anti-war sentiment comments tweeted? Well, I think, first of all, you know, several of us have tried to get on table, Barbara Lee, Chris Murphy, myself, uh, to make the case to defend the president, to defend the president's decision uh, of withdrawal. Uh, the the way cable news works is it's easier to get on if you're willing to to criticize the administration. That's just mm. how it is. So I think it's, it is uh, unfortunate, the balance, right? I mean, you would think that Barbara Lee should be on every cable news show, uh, given that she was the one person who was right fundamentally in the judgment that we shouldn't have been in there for 20 years. And yet, you know, she's gone on Al Sharpton's show, a couple other shows, but she's not getting invited. Whereas you've had uh, Leon Panetta and Petraeus all over cable Bolton, news. John you know, Bolton. One of the things I think that happened is that the, the cable news uh, networks became so accustomed to having some of these individuals there to be anti-Trump because a lot of them were anti-Trump. They developed relationships with them. So they were the first people who they called uh, after Afghanistan. 
And the problem is that they didn't just critique, which is a fair to say, OK, we should have evacuated earlier or not. They basically never wanted us to withdraw. So mm. if you have people on television who have never been for withdrawal critiquing the withdrawal without disclosing that they were opposed to the withdrawal in the first place, right. it creates a, a biased perception. And I, I think that's been the problem. Personally, I think look, Blinken has been pretty transparent. I mean, his interview yesterday or his press conference, it's not like he said we did everything perfectly. He said there'll be plenty of time to have that conversation. I accept responsibility. Things could have been done sooner. They could have been done more effectively. Let's have that conversation. But right now we need to get as many people out. And I, I hope that remains their focus because otherwise they're putting more Americans at risk. One more point, Kyle, if I could. This idea that, yes, we need to get every American. I, I guess the people who say, let's stay there, I guess my question to them is, what do they want us to do? Because a lot of the Americans or others who we may not be able to get are right now uh, outside Kabul. So unless they really want us to invade again, the Taliban, uh, there are other options that we have post uh, the withdrawal for missions that may be able to get Americans out and other vulnerable people out. But they just say, well, we want to get every American, we want to get every uh, vulnerable Afghan, every ally without saying how they're going to do that, because just having the troops sitting there for another two weeks at that airport is not going to get people outside Kabul. Right. Well, and unfortunately, we've seen today what a dangerous situation it is, you know, and I think people have had this magical thinking that you could have some fantasy mission that would end in, you know, I don't even know what they think it's going to ultimately end in, because it's not just that they want to get Americans out. It's that they want to somehow still transform Afghanistan. But they're never willing to actually lay out, how is that going to work when over 20 years, all we've actually done is make the Taliban stronger, make their opposition forces weaker, and enrich, enrich to the tune of billions of dollars a lot of defense contractors around the Beltway? Crystal, you're absolutely right. I mean, general after general after general came in front of the Armed Services Committee, came in front of Congress and said, our strategy is working. We're arming the Afghan army. They're stronger. They're going to be able to resist the Taliban. And they were absolutely 100% wrong. Where are the questions about that? Where are the questions about all of the misjudgments over the last 20 years? I say I'm perfectly willing to have oversight about what went wrong in these past 20 days if we're willing to have oversight of what went wrong these past 20 years. Because we can't put aside the questions of all of the mistakes that led to this point where, we, where we've lost the war. And so I, I, I believe that none of those questions have really been asked so far. Now, let's get people out of harm's way, and then let's have an oversight, uh, a full examination of what, was, what were the mistakes that got America into this situation uh, and why we had so much loss of life. Uh, yeah, I mean, so you're right. There's now a bunch of committees that want to investigate the, the withdrawal, but they don't want to investigate the war. Meanwhile, they ignored the Pentagon Papers. I mean, that was a huge story, but it was in the media. Papers. I'm sorry, did I, say, oh, I always say Pentagon yeah. Papers. Yeah. yeah, the Afghanistan Papers. That was in the news for like an hour, and then it was gone when that's the sort of stuff that deserves the hair on fire coverage for a week long or two weeks long. Why is it that I think it's three different committees run by Democrats now want to investigate this? Are they just political cowards? Is Menendez a political coward and that's why he wants to do this and he's trying to cover his own butt because he sees the negative press Biden's getting? Or is he just a rigid ideological hawk? Why are they doing it? 
Well, Kyle, I had called actually for an investigation of the Afghan papers. I was one of the only people who called for it at the time. And we've controlled Congress. And I said, why aren't we? It seemed to me such a big story, basically, that the American leaders had lied, had lied, Rumsfeld including, had lied to the American people, knowing they knew that the war was unwinnable. They knew that we weren't making progress and they were feeding us lies saying that we were making progress. We need to investigate that and we need to investigate uh, why so many people came to Congress and were totally wrong about what was happening with the Afghan army. Uh, not, my calls didn't go anywhere. I'm going to re-establish uh, those calls. Look, the best case scenario for why Democrats want to, to, to control the investigation is that they want to do so in a fact-based way, give the administration a chance to come and explain themselves, and they don't want it to be totally politicized, which is what the Republicans want to do. But I would support that if this was an inquiry and investigation into the 20 years, not just the 20 days. And I will make that case to to Adam Smith, who is the chair of uh, Armed Services, where I serve. And I hope, and I'll make that case to our leadership, that let's do this, but let's. it would be totally wrong to just focus on 20 days as opposed to 20 years. There's very obviously, it's never been more clear that there is a almost complete elite consensus, um, whether it's media or also among many of your colleagues, um, for most of your colleagues yeah. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And that is very disconnected from the views of the American people who have now, you know, voted for three presidents in a row who said they're going to get out. And even with this media onslaught of nothing but criticism, no nuance whatsoever, nothing but criticism, still somewhere in the 60 plus percent of Americans say, no, this war was not worth it. And yes, we want to get out. Now, they're not happy with how it's gone because, of course, the images have been horrific and now we have loss of life um, compounding that. But still, the policy of we want to withdraw from Afghanistan is widely shared in a bipartisan fashion. Why is there such a disconnect between the American people and between elites on issues of war and peace? I actually don't think, Crystal, there's as much of a disconnect between where the American public is and where members of Congress are. I think there's a disconnect between where the American public is and where the members of Congress who come on cable television are. So there are a lot of members of Congress who are probably quiet and support the president's withdrawal. The number, the people, though, who are being seen as the spokespeople who are out there, who are visible, uh, have been the ones who are critical. It was interesting to me that Seth Moulton and uh, Peter Mayer, when he, they went to Afghanistan, I, I don't think they should have gone, uh, they should have coordinated with the State Department, Department of Defense. But one of the interesting things to me is they came back and they said, the president's right. We need to actually get out by August 31st. There's no other way that we're going to be able to save people. And the president is uh, actually correct. So I think you have a case of a few people who unfortunately are guiding the narrative. And the president has probably more support among Congress who fundamentally agree with the decision to get out. They just haven't been as uh, vocal or as visible. And so I, I have my own theories, obviously, um, as yeah, to why no, the media is. Could, yeah. yeah, no, I was going to ask you, though, specifically about the media. Um, why are they so pro-war? Um, what do they see as in it for them? You know, I don't know if there's one cons- conspiracy theory. I, I think one of it is that they there is a consensus kind of foreign policy expert establishment view, and, and those are the people they turn to, and those people disproportionately happen to be ones who thought we should stay there. 
Uh, I think, by the way, if there is a mistake that the administration made, it's believing the the establishment that the Afghan army was as strong as as they were. If you talk to anyone outside kind of the Beltway establishment, they would have told you the Afghan army was incapable of fighting their way through a paper bag. That was mm. sort of common knowledge among everyone other than the Beltway establishment. And yet you've got the same kind of people who are, quote unquote, experts and the media goes to them, uh, goes to them first. And so you have this situation. Look, this is why presidents don't get out of these wars. They calculate the political risk. It's easy to have the rhetoric as Trump did. I want to end these wars, but they don't want to assume the risk. And that's why I said, Bernie Sanders said, we call Joe Biden's decision to withdraw courageous. And I stand by his view, by the view that his decision to withdraw was courageous. Do I think they got everything right on evacuation? No, we need to examine that and think of uh, how we may be able to do it better for the future. Uh, but the fundamental decision is, is, in my view, a courageous decision. He had to stand up to the entire establishment. Yeah. So to, I want to take a crack at answering your question. The media is really comfy with Pentagon sources and CIA sources. And so they're effectively stenographers to what we call the deep state. Everybody made fun of it when everybody used the term deep state under Trump. But that's just saying the people who are there from administration to administration who are as a career, they're in those positions. And so if you're stenographers to those people and those are the only kinds of people that get hired at these media companies, then the end result is it's viewed as like it's objective truth that we should stay there and it's the right thing to do that we should stay there. Uh, but I digress from that. As a final uh, thing on this, number one, can there be some sort of anti-war caucus? Number two, if we have that, we need. can we prod people to get vocal and go on the offense about this? And number three, are we going to get out of a a Iraq next? One, there, uh, there is on the progressive side, but I think we have to do a better job of sort of having a, a, a bipartisan anti-war caucus. Uh, I do think that's going to be harder now because there is a political incentive for the Republicans to attack the president. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how many Republicans continue to uh, help with that. Uh, but uh, we need to, uh, uh, to to work on that. I, I will certainly with Barbara Lee and others work on, on building that caucus. I hear you about going on the offensive. We probably that's constructive advice. We probably need to be more aggressive, at least on social media and alternative forums, even if we're not being able to break through in that first week on on cable news. Uh, and and that, I think, is something we need to do. My fear is that this is going to make uh, Biden more cautious in mm. withdrawing us from other wars. I hope that's not the lesson that's that's that comes out of it. Uh, that's why I, I, I think it would be a total mistake for these members of Congress who are calling for Sullivan and others' resignation because their intent is to replace them uh, with people who are much more interventionist. And I don't agree with everything that Sullivan and Blinken do, especially on Yemen. But let me tell you that the people who are calling for their resignation don't have uh, the intention to replace them with people who are less interventionist, but more interventionist. So right. I think this is a time for the, the, the Progressive Caucus. The irony is this, Kyle, I spent a year and a half making the case against Joe Biden as Bernie Sanders' co-chair. And you know who has his back? Not the people who are campaigning for him in the Democratic Party, but both reconciliation and on this decision to withdraw from the Afghanistan. It's the progressives who actually have the president's back, not the moderates in his caucus.
Yeah. No, I mean, that's actually that's a right. perfect segue. I'm the I'm the biggest Biden stand in the country now, ever since he pulled out of Afghanistan. And it's I was the harshest weird, critic for the longest time. It's been a weird turn of events for all of us, Congressman. <laughs> um, but you give me the perfect segue to domestic politics, because right. actually... Some of the people who were, you know, really supported strongly in their primary fights by the Democratic establishment now have joined this group of nine um, that, you know, they'll what they'll say publicly is, oh, we just really want to get this infrastructure package done so we can get shovels in the ground right away. Reality is they want to control the leverage so that they can either kill or significantly pare back the reconciliation bill uh, that Senator Sanders was instrumental in negotiating. I tried in my best to give people a lay of the land of the process, which is a little bit complicated here at the beginning before we brought you in. But if you could just give us an update on how you see where things stand today. Chris, let me start with a hypothetical and probably you or Kyle would have wished we had done that, but this, but Imagine if there were nine progressives led by Pramila Jayapal or someone saying, uh, we're not going to vote on the infrastructure bill or the, or the reconciliation bill uh, unless uh, the uh, speaker guarantees a vote on Medicare for all, and we're going to withhold our votes. There would have been a meltdown in this country, and we would have been labeled as the biggest obstructionist and that we're killing the president's agenda. And yet when basically the, the, the centrists did something that was hijacking the president's agenda, uh, I mean, there was criticism, but it was not nearly the mm-hmm. severity of the type of criticism that progressives face every day. And the progressives haven't done anything close to the critics of, on, on our left. The progressives haven't done anything close to hold up the president's agenda. And what was it all for? I mean, it was all theatrics. At the end of the day, the speaker wanted to move the bills as fast as possible anyway. So uh, it's, it's in, in my view, very unfortunate what happened. The only substantive thing that gives me criticism, concern is that the uh, understanding of the speaker that the House will not pass anything that doesn't have 51 votes in the Senate, because that basically is giving Manchin and Cinema veto power over anything we pass in the House. And that's why some of us in the House have been very, very firm and we're thinking about what doing a letter that it has to be 3.5 trillion. That was the the compromise that Bernie Sanders came up with, and that the House shouldn't be uh, lowering that number in what we send to the Senate. So, if if September 27th comes, and you get a a much smaller deal, right, a much smaller human infrastructure reconciliation deal, where let's say just for argument's sake, it's like. 1.2 trillion or something like that. Um, is it is it possible that you know the bipartisan bill does get the vote and you don't get a vote on the human infrastructure deal and you have like a bunch of moderate Republicans break off to vote with the moderate Democrats to bypass the progressives? You see what I'm saying? And forget, yeah. I fixed my analogies there. Forget the the smaller, I said a smaller human infrastructure deal. Let's say it's the same or whatever. But is that possible? You see what I'm saying? Moderate Democrats and yeah, moderate Republicans. Yeah, go ahead. I don't, I don't think it is because you have okay. a lot of progressives, not just me and, and Pramila and a few others. You have at least 50, 60 progressives who, are, who would vote no. I mean, I would vote no tomorrow. If the bill came up tomorrow on the infrastructure without the broader investment, I'd vote no. And there are 50 to 60 other members who would vote no. And you have a lot of the Republican pressure on McCarthy to whip no against it. And 
uh, I, I don't see there being 50 plus Republican votes in the House on that. My bigger concern, and this is uh, because, you know, I, I get your journalist, but we're also uh, all people in the progressive movement. So I feel like it could be be candid about the conversations going on in the progressive caucus is what happens if there is a reconciliation bill and that reconciliation bill isn't at the three point five trillion. And then uh, there's pressure on, well, we got to We've got to take it right now. Our position is three point five trillion. But the biggest place I think where the progressive caucus has to stand strong is on Bernie's bill being the compromise and not allowing that to get watered down. OK, so. Then let me ask you this, because I've said this a number of times uh, on my show and here on Crystal Kylan, friends. If because they're not done, like now the reconciliation process is beginning, so there are going to be more negotiations happening. So what is your actual is your actual red line? Like, no, the final thing has to be three point five trillion, because I've said I like two trillion or more. And then depending on the details. But if you dip below two trillion, then I'm out. Do you have a similar red line to me or are you saying, no, it's literally three point five trillion or nothing? Well, I think it'd be doing a disservice to, to Sanders if 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 I put out a red line here because we really want the Sanders yeah, bill. Yeah, fair point. I will, say fair there, point. <laughs> I, I, I will say there is a red line, you know, and it's okay. being discussed. But I'm not gonna I, I, I'm not gonna sort of negotiate that down or 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 they'll just go with whatever whatever I put out. And I think we view the 3.5 trillion as a compromise. I guess the one thing that we 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 do want to make sure is any cuts that they are proposing, they ought to explain why they don't believe in it. So. Let uh, whoever negotiates this, the the speaker and uh, the senators uh, who need to get on board, really explain, well, why is it exactly that we're cutting childcare, or why is it that we don't believe we should have free community college or why is it we don't want people to have dental and vision? So not just say, oh, we came up with this number, but if they're going to cut from Bernie Sanders's plan, let them explain what they're cutting and why they think that that's not good policy. Uh, and I think if we start there, we're going to see that three point five trillion actually is not enough. Uh, but if your question is, is there a red line uh, by which if it goes below, a lot of progressives will start voting? No. Uh, the answer to that is absolutely yes. They, they're, they're, they, they make certain cuts and you're not going to get progressives and uh, voting for it. How many people would you put in that bucket? Because you said you had 50 to 60 who are in the category of progressives that if the two aren't tied together, they're out in terms of the infrastructure bill. How many do you think you have more or less that would take a hard line on if it drops below X or if it doesn't include these climate provisions or whatever the red line ultimately ends up being that they will actually walk away from the whole thing? I'd say you have probably 15 to 20 strong uh, progressives committed to that. I We haven't done a whip count on it, but mm -hmm. just based on how... Uh, progressives have acted on on these bills in the last six months, you probably have a core of about 15 to 20, which is a lot because this is, has to pass with all Democrats. So a 15 to 20 uh, person group is is very significant. Yeah, that is significant. And then a uh, similar question, but let me ask it from in a little bit of a different direction. Um, do you have any of these priorities that are a must have for you and other progressives? So I know the mantra has been no climate, no deal. What exactly does that mean? Is, you know, the Medicare expansion, is that a must-have in this universal pre-K, universal, universal community college? Are there certain programs that you must see in there in order to be able to vote for it? The climate things are of particular importance to me. As you know, I chair the Environment Subcommittee on Climate. Uh, having a clean energy standard 
getting rid of these fossil fuel subsidies uh, are two of the top priorities, having the uh, civilian core uh, funded, having massive investment in solar and wind. Now, you know, I'm not going to make any one provision a, 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 a red line, but I will say this, if you've got the environmental community and the groups that are doing the work saying you've really stripped this of any significant thing on climate, uh, then you're going to have progressives oppose. I and mean, this is part of the reason progressives tomorrow would vote no on the bipartisan bill. The bipartisan bill does almost nothing when it comes uh, to climate. Uh, similarly, I think on Medicare, I mean, I don't understand why I have to have a red line on, on Medicare. You would just think people understand that it's good politics to have seniors getting vision and dental and, uh, and, and, and eyeglasses. It seems to me uh, that would be just foolish to be cutting that or Medicare prescription drug negotiation. Uh, but of course, those things are very important. Childcare, deeply important, especially if you could care about the economic uh, data. I mean, the, the reality of why people aren't returning to work is because they have childcare obligations, particularly with COVID. So, you know, all of them are important, but for me, the most important are the climate provisions. So uh, just to go back to something you said earlier, I want to get this on the record. You said there are 50 or 60, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, who say, the two bills have to go together, and if there was a vote on it tomorrow, that that's how they would vote. Um, you think none of them would abandon ship on September 27th? Because September 27th is a long way away. I really don't. I mean, I I mean, I guess you would have people having to to uh, have clips played back to them where they said they they wouldn't uh, vote for the bipartisan bill if it was if it was stripped. I I would I I don't believe they would, but based on the whip counts we've done. Uh, and I don't I don't think the speaker actually would put it up uh, individually to without the reconciliation bill. I think the far bigger concern I have, I could be wrong, but my concern would be, do they put a really watered down version of reconciliation and say, look, this is still progress. And, you know, here's the interesting situation. Look, I, I, I think Bernie Sanders is going to be a historic figure. This is basically his blueprint, a lot of the foundation on on his agenda. But the 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 gold standard is sort of, well, what does Bernie say, right? I mean, if Bernie sa is, says, okay, this is acceptable, that sort of defines, in many ways, the progressive movement. So the question is, uh, what will that reconciliation compromise be? What will Sanders be okay with? And Sanders is usually in uh, good communication with House progressives. So that's a, that's a great point, but that actually leads right into my next question, because so you have cinema uh, coming out and saying, not only am I not for the $3.5 trillion bill, I don't want to hear anything about it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm not voting for that at all, which means, boom, right there, the whole thing falls apart. So to get to my point earlier where I mentioned, if I'm negotiating this, if I'm in the room, if I have a seat, my line is it's got to be $2 trillion or more. And then obviously it depends on the details beyond that. But that's my real red line is $2 trillion or more. Do you think it's possible... Number one, to get Manchin, Cinema, Warner, and the seven or eight gaggle of idiots who voted against the $15 minimum wage, is it possible to get them, no matter what tactic, tactics you use, even if you use the carrot or stick approach, even if you twist arms like LBJ or FDR, is it possible to get them to support $3.5 trillion? And if the answer is no, well then, what can we get them to support? Can we get them on 2 or 2.5? Because I think maybe we can do that, but I don't think we can get 3.5. What are your thoughts? 3.5 will be hard. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We will try. I mean, we as a progressive caucus will make the case again. What is it that you don't want in there? Why is it that that's bad policy? Uh, and then we will also make the case that these taxes are actually just going for uh, taxing people who are extraordinarily wealthy 
who haven't been paying the tax. You know, the person who should actually be opposed to these taxes is, is me representing a district. That That's who you're going to be taxing, all the millionaires and billionaires in, in Silicon Valley. And if the Silicon Valley congressman can be saying, look, tax them, tax them. I don't understand how someone from West Virginia doesn't want to tax or Arizona doesn't want to tax the billionaires in my district. Uh, and many of them, by the way, are fine with paying the tax. So, uh, you know, we're going to continue to make the case that we need to raise these taxes on the ultra wealthy. We need to raise the corporate taxes to a level that they're actually paying tax. But if if we can't convince them, I, I think there will be a compromise. And then the question becomes, what? where is it that we're willing to compromise? The climate uh, and some of those basic provisions are not places. But, you know, at some point, uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't recommend to progressives that we tank everything uh, and, and not even be willing to engage in some compromise language. But I'm also not going to put a, a, a lower red line uh, out now and sort of uh, negotiate with ourselves uh, when the $3.5 trillion really was the negotiation. Yeah, and I saw Senator Sanders out with kind of similar language just today saying, look, I already negotiated. I wanted six points. I, this is already brought way down from not only what Senator Sanders had proposed, but even what Joe Biden had proposed at one point during his candidacy. So um, I think that that positioning makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit more. You keep you keep mentioning, I think this is um, important, that it really comes down to, you know, what is Speaker Pelosi willing to put on the floor? And does she basically try to jam progressives by saying, look, you know, this was the best we could get. So either vote for this or get nothing at all. What do you think that her incentives or motivations are with regards to reconciliation? Well, let me first say something about Senator Sanders, if I may. And obviously, I'm biased, having been uh, a co-chair of his campaign. One of the most unfair criticisms leveled at Senator Sanders that is demonstrably false, and you both remember this, is that he's somehow obstructionist, that he's not a team player, that he won't know how to get anything done. And Senator Sanders has for seven months proved that he's actually one of the biggest allies of the president. He has shown a pragmatism. He's shown a willingness to negotiate. He's shown a willingness to compromise. And yet he's gotten a large part of his agenda uh, in not only this bill, but as sort of a defining part of the Democratic Party. I believe if you ask me what is where is Speaker Pelosi's conviction, I think she agrees with everything that is in the $3.5 trillion bill. And she definitely believes in the child tax credit. That's actually a core conviction of her. She believes in paid family leave. She believes that we should be expanding Medicare benefits. She believes that we should be uh, expanding the uh, on the climate, on the clean energy standards. So this is not things where she would disagree with, right? She doesn't believe uh, or is not publicly willing to support Medicare for all or free public college. She really wasn't willing to go to the mat for uh, the $15 wage, or I guess she did in the House, that that was more a Senate issue. But there are issues that Sanders, Warren, believe in that she doesn't believe. This is something she really believes in. So then the question becomes, uh, okay, uh, how much is she going to negotiate? I think she'll negotiate with maximal pressure to try to get as much of it, uh, but she's going to be uh, mindful that she's going to want something rather than nothing. And if anything, I think the the, the, the Godheimer strategy probably turned her off. I mean, they mm. uh, yes. she, she's not going to be willing to do any sort of favors for them in terms of the negotiation. It's funny you say that because I thought the same thing. For the first time in a long time, I did a story where I covered, you know, Nancy Pelosi was punching right. And she was basically saying, get in line to the to the conservative Democrats. Um, so now I got to ask you a tough question. Of Origin originally, 
I was skeptical that President Biden was actually in favor of a $15 minimum wage. Then he signed an executive order which raised the federal workers' minimum wage to $15 an hour, and it, it included federal workers, federal contractors, uh, even tipped federal workers, which I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. And so this this uh, raised the wages for over 400,000 people. I remember covering that story at the time. I said, hey, I'm fair. Facts are facts. Credit to Joe Biden. This is phenomenal. So what that tells me is, no, he actually is in favor of $15 minimum wage. Now, the extent to which he's in favor of it is a different question. How much is he willing to go to the mat for it? But that leads me to the last fight where we had for the last COVID relief package, there was discussion about the $15 minimum wage being in there. Um, Bernie effectively forced a vote on that in the Senate. And what we learned is that there's like seven or eight uh, Senate Democrats who are against the $15 minimum wage. Kirsten Sinema with a little famous curtsy and thumbs down and everything. As I was watching that unfold, what occurred to me is, well, hold on, this isn't dead yet, because there's a strategy that might work here, which is you need to get a block of progressives in the House. That's more than the block of conservative Democrats in the Senate. So there's seven or eight of them. If we get 10 or 12 progressive House Democrats to say, no, 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 we will tank the entire bill unless you put the $15 minimum wage in there. So, Mr. President, get to work convincing those seven or eight Democrats who are against the $15 minimum wage. Get to work convincing them to be for the $15 minimum wage because we're not budging and we'll tank whatever unless it has. 50, I don't want to hear anything unless it has $15 minimum wage in there. Did anybody have conversations like that? Number one. Number two, why is there not enough of an organized, strong left to do something like that? Because that had a, the potential to work because the president nominally was on your side. He was for the $15 minimum wage. He just needed to be spurred to fight the conservatives who were against it. We did have conversations and it led to what you probably don't think was strong enough and obviously wasn't strong enough because it didn't work. There were 23 of us. I helped lead the effort writing a letter to the president and Vice President Harris saying overturn the parliamentarian, put $15 in reconciliation. I still don't, I actually honestly don't remember the parliamentarian's name even on this interview. I don't think any American would have cared if they had overturned the parliamentarian. And I think if they had put the $15 as part of the president's package, those seven senators would have voted for it because you wouldn't have had those senators willing to tank the president's entire package over the $15 issue. We lost that debate. Uh, at the time, the president pushed back. We were looked like we were obstructionists. Some people even said, why are we putting pressure on the vice president? But the vice president's in charge of the Senate. I mean, there was that the president and her decision it wasn't singling out uh, the vice president. We didn't go to we, it was contemplated. Some people said, well, maybe we should uh, have the whole thing withhold our votes. But remember, this was the president's first legislative priority. It was still in the midst of some of the peak numbers of COVID. Some of us, like me, were had said on the record with Trump that we needed to get a deal to at least get money to people and we couldn't delay it. And there was that still that urgency. It would have probably looked uh, hypocritical and we then were willing to tank uh, any possibility of getting relief to people in that first bill. So we didn't think that that was the vehicle to make that stand. Um, obviously, some people thought we should have, uh, but my view is that wasn't the time. The administration then said, look, they're committed to this $15. They're going to get it at some point. We'll, we'll see. I mean, so far, we have to have it be part of some must-pass bill or have it eliminate the filibuster to get it. Yeah. Is there a strategy? Because, I mean, I don't have to tell you, it's the longest time that um, we've gone without lifting the minimum wage in that program's history. George it, Bush was the last one to do it. George W. Bush. It's insanely popular. 
um, passed easily in the state of Florida, which sadly went relatively voted for easily Trump. for Donald <laughs> yeah. J. Trump, but at the same time voted quite easily as well for $15 minimum wage. I mean, I have a really hard time understanding a single Democrat that doesn't support this, but let's put that aside for a moment. What would a strategy look like at this point to get $15 minimum wage passed when uh, the president's been adamant about, like, ceding all kinds of power to this parliamentarian, unwilling to get rid of the filibuster, and so you're left in kind of the status quo situation? It has to be part of a must-pass bill. I mean, I would say overrule the parliamentarian is the simplest way, but they're not willing to do that. They're not willing to, so far, do anything with the filibuster. So put it in a a, a must-pass bill. The defense uh, authorization uh, would be a must-pass uh, bill that it could be in. And look, if it doesn't get to $15, if it's at $12 or $13, we're, we're not going to vote against that, but at least get the wage up to a significant level. And the, the, the reality is, that they haven't been willing uh, to do that. But I'm working with uh, Adam Smith, who's the chair of the Armed Services Committee, to see if we can at least get some significant minimum wage increase into the must-pass bill. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't want to be a broken record, but I'll just say it one more time. You, Corey Bush, Ilhan Omar, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, Mark Pocan, I could list seven, eight more that are, they definitely, you definitely believe in this stuff, but if you guys don't organize and stick together and you're willing to go out there and fight for this, then it's not going to happen. And so, I, I, and I've made this point before, I know it's not easy, Congressman, because I know what the media is going to say the second you guys do this. I know the media is going to paint you guys out to be the enemies, and I know that they're going to say, you're helping Republicans, and like you pointed out before, you're obstructionists, and you're this, and you're that. But, you know, this is why you need leadership characteristics and qualities as well, because you got to lean into that. I'd be, I'd be yummy, yummy in my tummy. Give me that fight. I want to fight the media. The media has got a way lower approval rate rating than a lot of politicians do. So like go to town, <laughs> fight back. It's not over the second they say something. What do you have to say to that? I'm sorry, there, look, there are times I've been willing to do it, obviously most uh, prominently on Yemen. There have been times where I've been willing to to push back on, on the party. I, even the, writing to Kamala Harris on overturning the parliamentarian was pushing uh, pushing the envelope. People thought we were unnecessarily criticizing the administration. But is there going to come a time, where, to your point, where we really have to withhold our votes on something? Uh, absolutely. I Yes. But the I guess what I would say is the progressives feel like, given that we have Biden there, we don't have Bernie Sanders, we don't have Elizabeth Warren. If you look, take a step back and you look overall at what did the American Rescue Plan have and what does uh, the current infrastructure and human investment plan have, I, I think you would say progressives have got 70, 80 percent of what we wanted in there. And so we have won a lot of battles. And then the question becomes, uh, where do you draw the line? But I agree with you. If you were to say, what is one place where we have failed? It's on the $15 wage. It's such a fundamental issue. It goes to income inequality. It seems to me also the easiest thing uh, I believe Medicare for all is good politics. I believe free public college is good politics, but you can make a case sort of you have to debate it. And there are a lot of nuances. Fifteen dollar minimum wage, I just think, is such clearly good politics, even if you're in a very moderate district. Uh, and it is a, a drop ball. And we you know, the progressives have to regroup. And, and I'll uh, convey that to people after after this interview, because I agree this is sort of so basic. People need to see their wages go up. Um, Congressman Clyburn, as part of the whole, what are they calling themselves, the unbreakable nine, such an obnoxious moniker, um, as part of that whole deba- debate, 
Congressman Clyburn said, listen, if Dems lose the majority, they might not get it back for 40 years. And I know, look, you're a Democratic member of Congress. You don't want to go on our program and say, yeah, we're probably (laughs) screwed for the midterms. But I'll just say, historically, it has not gone well for the party in power in the midterm elections. And the landscape looks pretty tough. Um, Do you feel that Joe Biden and the other Democrats are operating with that sense of urgency. You mentioned the climate earlier. I mean, you know, the facts are the facts. And every day we're learning that things are even worse than we ultimately thought. So this is really the moment to do something that is significant and transformative. And to me, it just seems patently absurd to say, yeah, we'll do that as long as the Senate parliamentarian says it's okay," or as long as this we can get through this archaic Senate procedure called the filibuster. So does their rhetoric match with the their willingness to use the tools at their disposal to actually meet the moment? No. And look, Jim Clyburn is not one to exaggerate or put out sound bites. He he has had an experience of 30, 40 years of politics. He came from the civil rights movement. He went to jail during civil rights. He's had a very inspiring life story. When he's saying it could be decades that we lose power, that's because he really fears that. And he fears that because of partisan redistricting and because of voter suppression laws. And that's why he has urged the president. I mean, the president wouldn't have been president if it weren't for Jim Clyburn. He has urged the president to have at least an exception on the filibuster to get voting rights and redistricting reform passed. Here's what I don't understand. And maybe maybe these last couple of weeks would be a wake-up call uh, in this way to the Biden administration. Who were the first people to turn on Joe Biden when this uh, the, the, the situation in Afghanistan happened? I saw John Kasich on television saying he regrets that he ever supported Biden. All these wow. people were, quote, unquote, moderate Republicans who Biden's coalition depended on. They were the first people to turn on him. And what that shows is that is not a sustainable vision neither for Joe Biden nor for the Democratic Party. We have to have fair rules that allow our people and our base to vote. And that is what filibuster reform is about. It's to make sure that Democrats can vote so Democrats can win elections. I don't understand how you don't do that uh, as as president. I mean, it's in the president's own self-interest. It's the right thing to do. This is the time to do it. Jim Clyburn is screaming that we need to do it. Uh, And I I I mean, that is really what it will take, or we do run the risk of being out of power. And this is about his legacy as well. I mean, play to a politician's ego. Uh, What do you think holds him back? Genuine sense of uh, wanting to bring the country together. I mean, let me, I think he he sees his time in the Senate for 30 years as a time of of, of greater collegiality. Uh, But that's not this time in in American history. That's not the Senate that he served in. And it's not the country that uh, he was uh, uh, that he led in for the predominant part of his his career. And so there's just a a hesitancy because he, he is an institutionalist. He is someone who wants to try to seek goodwill on the other side. Uh, But I think what he has to see is right now it's really a battle for fundamental fairness, justice and the survival of a lot of the Democratic Party in certain parts of the country. So you're uh, I would argue your two biggest accomplishments. Number one would be the uh, Stop Bezos Act, which I I think 
pressured him enough to raise his minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I don't even think that's really arguable when you look at the timeline. You and Bernie proposed that. And, um, you know, I argued on my show it was because it was framed in a way that was very bipartisan because it also talked about, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the legislation also talk about um, reducing the size of the social safety net by forcing these big companies to pay $15 an hour. It was framed in a way where even conservatives could get on board with it. So I think Bezos felt the pressure and he was like, okay, I'm going to make it $15 an hour. So that was definitely one of your biggest accomplishments. And then also uh, what you did on Yemen, because you led the way on Yemen to basically end the blockade, to end our assistance of what is effectively a genocide being carried out by Saudi Arabia. So what happened is Trump vetoed that when he was in power. Um, and then where are we now? Because Biden made it seem like, oh yeah, we're stopping the assistance of Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. But then we learned, oh, we only meant we weren't going to offensively bomb anymore, but we're going to defensively bomb for them if need be, which means they could just bomb and call it defensive every time. So is he living up to your expectations on that? And what should be done? Well, progress has been made in Yemen, but certainly not nearly enough. Uh, the uh, Trump administration had suspended voluntarily the refueling of, of the planes after the War Powers Resolution passed the House and the Senate the first time with Sanders and I that we passed a War Powers Resolution, actually, since the conception of the War Powers Resolution. President Biden came in. He had a very good start. He said, we're going to stop all uh, refueling. Uh, and we, uh, w with anything that the Saudis are going to use to bomb uh, the, the Houthis. Now, what, by defensive, he means that the United States would still have uh, intelligence or uh, some support if missiles are being launched into Saudi Arabia, but not that uh, the Saudis can go bomb into Yemen as a defensive mission. The problem is that there is still too much of a blockade. There are still ships that are not getting into Yemen with food, with humanitarian, it, 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 with humanitarian needs, uh, and with oil, which is required in that country, fuel, uh, to uh, not have mass inflation. And so what we have said is we have more tools in, in our leverage. Uh, the United States, we could ground the Saudi Air Force to a halt if we stopped our defense contractors from supplying some of the spare parts and tires. Uh, that passed, Bernie and I led in National Defense Authorization Amendment last Congress that passed, uh, but was stripped out at the last time, time in Congress, uh, in conference. And Jake Sullivan, the security advisor, and others supported that. Uh, I am making the case very strongly to the administration that they should support, now that they're in power, the same thing they supported when they were out of power. We need to make sure that's part of the National Defense Authorization. And if we get that in, and if we actually have that leverage on the Saudis, they would end the blockade. But until we have that leverage and until the blockade continues, the suffering is continuing, the famine is continuing, our hands may not be as unclean as they were a year ago, but that doesn't solve the fundamental humanitarian crisis. So I've given Biden a lot of credit for withdrawing from Afghanistan. I've been doing it relentlessly for the past two weeks, um, but I also criticize him when he does stuff I don't like. He bombed Syria illegally twice. Number one, I didn't see any left Congress person condemn him for that. So I my did. question is, did. you did. OK, so you do I'm condemn that. Yeah. Well, is there any Fine. other Democratic Congress person who condemned him for that or did I miss it? I think Barbara Lee did. I think a number of number of others did. Um, certainly others raised concerns. Uh, I I'm on the record. And if you Google it, you'll see I, I okay. criticized him 
extensively on that. Wonderful. In fact, there was an article that was uh, overbroad that said, as I, I had said, that Biden's policy was a failure. We had to get a correction. I said, no, I don't think it's a failure. I think those strikes were illegal. Right. Okay. Um, so a while ago, there was a resolution that came up condemning BDS. And many people, including myself, view that any official condemnation from the government when it comes to something like BDS is uh, a violation of, of free speech. So why did you support that resolution that condemned BDS? And tell me your thoughts. This is an area where uh, we disagree. And a lot of progressives disagree with, with me on it. Uh, I, I, I've never been uh, for sort of broad economic sanctions in places that are going to hurt people. And we have, uh, I think, a, a broad economic sanction on uh, the state of Israel, which is what uh, BDS would be, uh, is uh, not productive. I mean, not just because of so much interdependence uh, economically of our country and uh, academic institutions, but it also would hurt a lot of people in Israel, who some of whom who actually don't want to see the end of the settlement. So my view is I'm against the settlements uh, expanding. Uh, I'm uh, for lifting the blockade in, in Gaza. I am uh, for making sure uh, that any of our aid is compliant with the Leahy law and doesn't violate human rights uh, and that we get the data, not just from Israel, but other countries so that we can actually enforce the Leahy law. Uh, but I think BDS is, is, is too far. So, but then let me ask you, because Palestinians, whenever they react violently to occupation, that's called terrorism. And then when they try a nonviolent approach like BDS, they said they're told they're not allowed to do that either. BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions is just modeled after what worked in South Africa. So how can Palestinians resist if they can't do it violently or peacefully through economic means? Well, they, they I, I have never supported the criminalization of it. I, I don't believe that it should in any way be a civil penalty or a criminal penalty to do that. There are state statutes. And initially, there were federal uh, bills that would have actually criminalized it, which I'm totally opposed to. And to the extent that the Palestinian community and the diaspora or their allies uh, want to use that tactic as what they see as their view of civil disobedience, that's, that's their right. I don't think, uh, as an American lawmaker, uh, that I I can say that we should totally disengage our economic relationship with Israel, which is basically what BDS is saying. And so I don't support that as the United States Congress. That doesn't mean as the United States lawmaker, I would condemn someone for using that that technique in a, uh, a criminal or civil uh, way that has a criminal or civil penalty. Yeah, I mean, it's an attempt to try to force them to give Palestinians their human rights back. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of people on the left support it, including myself. Um, final question. Uh, I'm very curious as to, you know, the way stuff really works behind the scenes. I remember when you initially came out and endorsed Joe Crowley, and then there was an out <laughs> outrage over that. There was, you know, a lot of people were angry. And then you said, you know what, dual endorsement. I'll also endorse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, they call it the patented kind of dual endorsement. I've never yeah, the, the, the endorse everybody, out. right. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you, because I'm curious. I know there's always a reason for stuff. What was the reason for endorsing Joe Crowley? Are, were you personal friends with him? Had he worked with you on a certain bill? Like, what was it that made you do it initially? Yeah, well, he was the chairman of the uh, Democratic Conference. Uh, he had just signed on to Medicare for All. He had signed on uh, to legalizing marijuana. He was sort of moving in a progressive direction. I had visited 
only because of the primary. <laughs> only because yeah, of AOC primarying him. Yeah. Yeah. And and candidly, uh, even at the time, I know it's hard to say that now. I didn't know who uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was. I didn't never heard of her, never heard of her campaign. And so Crowley says, uh, you know, endorse me. I think, OK, he's moving in the progressive direction. He's likely to be in leadership. We want him to be pushing our priorities. I'll endorse him. And uh, I did that. And then a week later, I think her video uh, came out, or at least maybe her video was always out, but someone sent it to me. It became viral. I had Shoycott and uh, Corbin Trent, who I had known, reach out and said, what are you doing? She's going to be a superstar. <laughs> she's going to win. And even if she doesn't win this time, she's the future, one of the future progressive movement leaders. And then I looked into it and I thought, OK, here's the best I can do is a, a, a dual endorsement. But uh, you know, the irony is I probably would not have gotten in, involved at all. I mean, if I'm being honest, if I hadn't endorsed Crowley in the first place, I would have just stayed out. Instead, because I endorsed Crowley, I had to kind of fix that. Uh, and I, you know, people, you were tweeting, I think, out about it, uh, Kyle, others. I, so I had to fix it. And I think actually my endorsement at the time of AOC, even though it was a dual endorsement, ended up helping her a lot more than if I had just stayed out uh, out of it. So it, it worked out. Yeah, I mean, but again, perspective is always interesting because it, this is something you see, even with Bernie, you see this a lot. Like you have all these like left-wing up-and-comers who are really all about the cause, and it's just so hard for them to gain any traction because even people who are nominal allies ideologically who are already in Washington, D.C., they end up, you know, falling back on the position you just espoused, which is if I had known about her before I endorsed Joe Crowley, I probably would have just stayed out of it. And, you know, it's tough. We got to build solidarity in a way that sort of uplifts new voices so we can really clean house of all the ghouls that are your colleagues. No disrespect to actually, yes, disrespect to the (laughs) ghoulish colleagues of yours, but we don't put you on the list of the ghouls. But anyway, thank you so much, uh, Congressman Rokana, for your time. We really appreciate it. And, you know, you fielded some questions that are rather difficult. You didn't have to do that. and, And thank you a lot that yeah, we really we appreciate, appreciate that. Well, my, my goal in, in coming into this interview was don't get on Kyle Kalinske's ghoul list or crystal ball. <laughs> so I think I've, I've, I've met the bar. <laughs> that, that's a well, long that's, list, man. Did, I, I have to make new room on it or something. We'll see. No, we really right, appreciate your time. Me. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. All right. So there's Congressman Ro Khanna. Very interesting conversation. Um, right off the bat, I just want to say there are a couple questions I missed. I'm annoyed that I missed them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was he recently tweeted something about Bill Crows. I covered it on my show. So yeah. it's not like I'm hiding from it. I criticized him on my show when he wasn't even there. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, he said, Bill Crystal is one of the one of our most thoughtful voices in defending liberalism and democratic institutions in our country. Yeah, I think he uh, I went didn't on, feel great about that. one. No, because everybody was like, fuck <laughs> you. Yeah. Well, so, and also Crystal is one who now has been terrible on Afghanistan. Oh, he's the worst on everything. Yeah, and, he's um, terrible. Roe was mentioned. Congressman Connor was mentioning how. Part of the problem with the media coverage now of Afghanistan is that we elevated, they elevated all of these anti-Trump right. neocon yeah. voices. Who he elevated here. Bill right. Crystal being one of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the point I was going to make to him, and this is why I'm sort of upset, like this is the one I'm most mad I missed. Yeah. Um, is that I'm all in favor of like free speech and open dialogue and discourse and like getting different perspectives and stuff. Like I don't want anybody to think I want to shut down discourse. In fact, I even said in my segment, it's fine that you talked to him. That's totally fine. My issue is what is effectively, I think, a false portrayal of him as this, most thoughtful voices in defending liberalism and democratic institutions in our country. He was the head of a neoconservative think tank, which was the architect for the fucking Iraq war, 
which is an illegal and offensive war on a country that didn't attack us where hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died. The guy's a war criminal. Yeah, and helped so, screw up that entire region. So that's that's my issue with it is like you could talk to him, but if you're going to talk to him, it should reflect the reality, which is you don't praise him for being some sort of hero. You talk to him about, what did he say? do you feel bad about the destruction of, of Iraq? What did you say? Defender of democracy. He said defending liberalism and democratic institutions in our country. Yeah. And it's like, no, none of that is accurate. So the issue was not that he talked to him. The issue was that don't act like he's something he's not. Don't and also don't say, right. And also the other thing is don't debate the non-debatable. That's the other thing. Like don't discuss things. We already have, and we know what this guy is. We know who he is. We know he's a warmonger. We know he's a neocon. If you're going to talk to him and have those things be present and known and, and out in the open, good. But the, he didn't do that. So that was the problem with that. Yeah. You know? Um, what did you think? So I, I actually thought it was really uh, useful to get his view of where reconciliation is and his concerns about, like, where things could kind of fall apart or go south. And it's basically what we feared, that they'll get jammed with some kind of pathetic reconciliation bill that the timeline that's been set now of the September 27th is basically used to jam progressives into like, listen, this is what's on the table. Take it or leave it or else you're going to get nothing. Um, so that seems to be their concern as well. And uh, they're trying to lock in what where their red lines are going to be ultimately as a progressive caucus. And he said that there were 50 to 60 who would not vote for the infrastructure bill if it's not tied together with the reconciliation bill. I don't agree bill, with him on that, by but the way. But only maybe 15 who will actually draw some kind of a hard red line right. ultimately if they if Pelosi tries to jam them with something that's inadequate. Yeah, and by the way, I don't, I don't agree with him on that. I think that by September 27th, that 50 or 60 would drop massively. I think that a lot of them would abandon ship. I, I actually, I'm not sure about that because... You, I think you and I may have a disagreement on this. I think Pelosi very much is committed to getting some reconciliation. Agreed. Yeah, she is. So I don't think there's going to be a situation where she decouples them and there's not something that's being brought to the floor in terms of a reconciliation bill yeah, by but, that point. So, so what how I'm pathetic is, are we getting, though? Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying is like, I think um, the reason why I think it is 50 to 60 that would not vote for the infrastructure bill if the reconciliation bill because they have Pelosi's blessing is because this is this is the Biden Pelosi Schumer position right so gotcha. it's an easy position to mm -hmm. hold yeah no I think I think that that does explain it pretty well um yeah like like I said two trillion plus or I don't want to hear it I don't want to talk to you that I mean uh, there's a million ways you could draw the red lines like you said no climate no deal there's a bunch of ways you could draw the red line but yeah. one of the red lines for me is I'm not going under 2 trillion I think that's fair I think it's got to be 2 trillion and then you have to look at the details like so I said 2 ideally, trillion is nece necessary but not sufficient ideally you have everything that's in it stays in it but it's 2 trillion instead of 3.5 trillion or 2 trillion or more instead of 3.5 trillion that yeah. would be ideal in my opinion that's the, you know that would be Best case, I'd be doing cartwheels if that's the thing they came. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is he was basically like, well, we're going to see what Bernie says. Like, we're going to take our cues in terms of our red line. Right. From the the note that he— the, That also scares me a little bit. The though. line that he set. Yeah, me too, yeah, a little bit. But but I'm not sure that there's anyone else that I would really prefer. Well, that, and that's the problem. <laughs> but that's the problem. And that's why I was trying to impress upon him. Like, then you guys are fighters. Then you guys are leaders. You know, it's all, you know, you have to organize and you have to vote as a block. And then you have to take that incoming fire and take the lemons and turn them into lemonade. Like, no, you're coming after me. I'm coming after you. 
idiot media. I'm going to bend my, bend the will to you. The media has a record unpopular rating right now. Yeah. Well, I'm supposed to bend the knee when I get shitty criticism from like Aaron Burnett. Fuck well, out of here. And especially because it would be one thing if um, you didn't have people aligned with you who had the ability to drive media coverage. Mm -hmm. So like if you're some nobody and you have no social media presence, you have no ability to sort of to garner attention and force a news cycle, then you can be oppositional and they just ignore you and sort of you're, you know, pissing into the wind and it doesn't matter. But the great strength of AOC and other members of the squad and Bernie Sanders is that they have these huge social media followings. They have an ability to force the media to cover something. And so that's their greatest strength. They have to be willing to actually use that strength and not be afraid to have the media, you know, shit all over them. Yeah, because like I said, when the media says something, that doesn't mean it's the end of the conversation. And a lot of these people had that thing where it's like second they hit an, a little bit of resistance, yeah. it's like, bah, I give up. Well, you could kind of see it even with the Afghanistan. I mean, Congressman Khan even admitted that, that like with Afghanistan, it's like a lot of people agree with you and me and agree with Congressman Khan that Biden did the right thing. But they're being kind of quiet about it. Yeah, they don't want to take the heat. They don't even want to put the tweet out because fun, they don't want to see the reply. That is pure cowardice, though. And I don't like I don't even really put them in the category of you support the withdrawal. Because in order to support the withdrawal, you got to have the cojones. Something. No, to also yeah. vote the right way and act the right way. And they're not they didn't vote on shit. They let Biden do all the heavy lifting and then they're hiding in the corner. Yeah. Well, and again, cowed by the media. Right. Afraid of, oh, I'm going to get bad press around this. Or they, I'm going to get nasty replies on my Twitter or whatever. See, the th but the thing that Trump proved is that the media is a paper tiger. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even require somebody who's dynamic or charismatic or interesting or correct yeah. to have a counter narrative to the media. It just requires somebody with a big enough megaphone who repeats it enough. That's it. That's all it takes. Yeah. Well, you also see that even with the media onslaught right now, people are firm in their views that we should be getting out. No matter so, how you phrase it, people do not say we should say. Even if you say, what if Al-Qaeda took over all of Afghanistan? People are like, don't care. Get I, out. I remember I saw a story that was like, oh, Democrats are really worried about the midterms now because of Afghanistan. And it's like, yeah, but you all are just leaving Biden out there to twist in the wind. And so the general public... When you're manifesting see. the thing that you say you're afraid of. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. creating yes. that reality because, you know, generally speaking, when the public sees something where it's like Democrats on this side and Republicans on this side and they're like, well, eh, it's kind of a toss up. Who knows? And it doesn't really change the political dynamics whatsoever. When you see that your own party is either silent or trashing you and it's just like everybody across the board is negative, negative, negative then, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of influenced by that to think like, oh, well, there must be really be something here because even his allies are saying that there were problems. with And, and see, this is where Biden and I'm not blaming him because I actually do feel bad for him in this situation. But this is where he needs a little bit more Trump in him, because you do get the sense every time he talks on this, it's very defensive. It's very like, let me make the case, but tepidly and like meekly and hope everybody agrees with me. You, this is when you go on the offense. Again, that's what Trump proved. So if you go, imagine if Biden went out there and said the words, the media is beholden to the military industrial complex and Dwight Eisenhower warned about this. I'm telling you the truth. They're lying to you. Headlines all across the country yeah. and every newspaper, it would be on CNN, it'd be everywhere. Right. And even though they would cite it to then attack him, that's yeah. such a powerful and true statement. People would be like, he's right. Yes, that so is that, true. So that's why, again, this is why I was saying to, to Congressman Khanna, Go on the offense. Like you got go. If you really believe this, go on the offense. Like 
This is how you build a narrative. This is how you move people. You don't do it by meekly, cowardly sitting and, in the corner. And when you do that, when you do that and you're the president, then you have people who right. were a little too cowardly yeah. to say before come out right. and have your back and they want to be part of that narrative and, and all of that. But because he is kind of meek, kind of defensive, um, it doesn't encourage or inspire anyone to come out from behind the curtain and say, you know what, he's actually right on I'll, this. I'll go to my classic example. What did Trump do at the debates against Hillary Clinton? The very first debate after we learned, he said, on tape, I grabbed him by the pussy. I don't even Yeah, work. brought in all the... He brought like eight or nine in. of Bill Clinton's accusers <laughs> and was like, listen, I'm not proud of it. What I said was just words. It was locker room talk. I'm not proud of it. But Bill Clinton actually did stuff, folks. And all of them are sitting right there. Raise your hands, girls. And the media was like... Ugh. Yeah, and then what happened? right there. It's too juicy for them to ignore, so then they got to cover that. And he just changed the whole conversation from Trump said some shit to Bill Clinton did some shit. So Biden could change the whole conversation from Biden messed up the withdrawal to media owned by military industrial complex. Right. You know, like just change the conversation. Go out there and, and then, go ruthlessly on the offense. And then they can't help but have their panel discussion. Right. About like, is are we owned by? Right. Owned exactly. By exactly right. Even in the process of denying it, you repeat the charge, which actually bolsters people's view of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. I, He's got to listen to this. Hire me as the campaign manager, except <laughs> don't because I don't want to fucking do it. It was anyway. sad because there were all those stories about like they can't even get surrogates. To go let on TV. Me, let me out. Like, let me in, me coach. Up. Let me sign in, coach. Me up. Imagine. Don't look at what I said on crime bill or bankruptcy yeah. bill or anything that you've done yeah. in your life. Yeah. Only yeah. look Media, at the don't Afghanistan. Don't ask me about anything but right. Afghanistan. Yeah. But on Afghanistan, I'm there. I'm let good. me in, coach. Got your back, Joe. Let me in. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, we love you. It was a fun episode this week, for sure. Uh, thank you to Congressman Connor for coming on. If you support the show and what we do here, you could always uh, pay the $5 a month on Patreon. You get the video version of the show. You get it a day early. You also get the fantastic newsletters from Piper. Thanks so much, Piper, for all the work you she do. Does uh, she does a phenomenal job. She always has great newsletters. Um, so, yeah, support us, $5 a month, and like I said, video a day early. If not, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You get the audio version. You just get it a day later on Saturday. But remember, guys, we take $0 and 0 cents from any advertisers on this show, and it will always be like that, so we're funded by you, and we take a lot of pride in the fact that we're funded just through small-dollar donations. I really think we're one of the only people, if not the only people, who do it. Yeah, I don't know of anyone else. Yeah. So there you go. We yep. rely on you guys and we appreciate you guys. And we will see you back here next week. Yeah.